politician that ever lived. Uh, the New Testament, I think, puts on display the logic and workings of human politics and shows us the logic at the center of human political strategy. This is from John eleven forty seven to 53. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. The reason for the council discussion is Jesus' popularity. And this is part of a larger situation and crisis, which we know results in the destruction of Jerusalem in less than 50 years. There's an irresolvable debate in which they cannot see their way forward. They are between the rock of Christ's growing popularity and the hard place of the threat of Rome. Because the debate seems to be going nowhere, and their nation is in danger, Caiaphas interrupts, and he's very rude, actually. He says, you know nothing at all. And with Caiaphas' presentation of the notion that it is expedient for you that one man die, they all galvanized in their thinking. They say to themselves, well, of course, this is the answer. This is the necessity of the situation that we face. Maybe they had thought this privately, but none of it had said it publicly yet. Um, Because even in their own law and their own religious understanding, what Caiaphas is saying is clearly wrong. It's illegal. His logic, though, is irresistible. They must limit the violence as much as possible. They're forced to turn to the use of violence to avoid an even greater violence. Caiaphas, of course, I believe, is the incarnation of politics at its best. Here is the finest of political strategies. And it is precisely this strategy and thinking that are forever exposed and overturned in the cross of Christ. Now make no mistake, there are all sorts of risks and involved in this violence, but Caiaphas proves himself a leader, a prophet. He's going to start a ball rolling that will not stop until it consumes, literally, the disciples themselves. The others in the council rely on him as their model. They have faced a moment of indecision, of turmoil. They didn't know what to do, and now it's clear what is necessary. They have attained a clear certainty 
And there is no doubt in their minds, and they will never question again that they are right in their judgment. And this is the beauty of the logic here. It's so clear, it's so certain. Now, as to the matter of the guilt or innocence of the man Jesus, well, that's a, another question, a minor consideration in comparison to the greater good. That is the saving of the nation. And the man's not, he won't be quiet. We can't get him to shut up. Better to silence him and appease the Romans. And this will demonstrate to the Roman government, governing authorities, how serious they are. And so Caiaphas mobilizes the group. He, lets, he gets them working in harmony toward one cause. And from that day on, they plan together to kill him. We could say that Caiaphas is the perfect sacrificer. His logic is impeccable. He puts one victim to death to save those who live. This is why every soldier and every sacrifice is offered to the necessities of this world. There is no dissenting voice once Caiaphas points the way forward. And clearly, the coalition of the leaders of Israel, the leaders of Rome, they will converge in this decision unanimously. Can we say here is democracy at work? All the powers that be have cast their lot. Caiaphas has uttered for all of mankind, not only of his generation, but for all generations, the truth. Here is the finest political moment in all of human history. For Caiaphas has given voice to the mythological reason for every sort of religious sacrifice. The gods of Rome, the gods of nature, the gods of war demand sacrifice that we might live. The Aztecs continually offered up human sacrifice to their gods. The God of Imperial Japan, the United States, Nazi Germany, demand that some sac be sacrificed, that the living, and of course by the living, the people of importance might go on living. We can afford to sacrifice the lowly, the slaves, the foreigners, the Jews. Miguel's not here today. I put in the Mexicans. Uh, the others, so that the others might go on living. This is the most sacred thing about us. This is, uh, maybe this is what our finest leaders can give voice to. And this is what rallies all of us. Now, it's regrettable, but someone needs to say it. This is the very meaning of the word decisive. And it's what we look to our leaders to do. The word that John uses here makes this clear. The word is expedient. In the Greek, it means useful, advantageous. It is the utilitarian necessity that keeps us alive. Among the pre-Socratics, Democritus defends the way of expediency, of utilitarianism. This is the democratic way from which his name derives. Here is democracy at work. In the death most strikingly similar to the passion, 
and that is of you know the suffering servant in Isaiah. We have the same situation. A crowd gathers round against a single victim. Just as similar crowds throughout the Old Testament gather round and unite against Jeremiah, against Job, against the psalmists in various psalms, in Genesis, against Joseph. And they're cast out just as Joseph was cast out by his brothers. All these episodes of violence have the same all against one structure. Now don't question the political religious reality. It's precisely here through Caiaphas that the prince of this world comes up against the prince of peace. The point of John is to show that this absolute truth, this complete certainty, is in fact a complete lie. It's the untruth. The certainty and truth that we would build upon is the lie that has deluded the authorities. The spirit of democracy that has possessed them is exposed for the demon that it is. What is certain, true, and which one everyone can come to a consensus about. And remember, the consensus will include even the lead disciple. This is precisely what Jesus reveals as being the spirit of the prince of this world. When I am lifted up, the prince of this world is cast out. And it's precisely here then that the battle begins. Now Pilate will in fact take this a step further. He'll put it to a popular vote. He asks the crowds, who shall I release to you, Jesus or Barabbas? And of course they yell out, Barabbas. And what shall I do with the king of Israel? And they shout unanimously, crucify him. Caiaphas, Pilate, Judas, and eventually Peter. They all become indistinguishable as the logic of the crowd takes over. They're swept along in the democratic spirit. There is a unified opinion. Now, it's not that they've abandoned morality completely. No political system can dispense completely with the pretense of morality. But the controlling factor is utilitarianism, is expediency. And so Caiaphas' formula sums up for all time that which supersedes every moral consideration. It is better that this man die, that we might live, that the nation might survive. Now John's designation of Jesus as the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, pinpoints that sin. It is the sin of democracy. It is the sin of majority rule. Let's vote on the truth. Does everybody agree? And that will divide them and they will offer up the sacrifice, the innocent lamb. The lamb is also depicted then in John and Mark as the shepherd. Jesus quotes Zechariah in this regard, I shall strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Upon his arrest we see the scattering. 
And Mark, in his depiction, follows Peter, who is following Jesus, into the very heart of the beast, into the courtyard of the high priest. And Mark tells us that he followed at a distance. And he sees the guards, in fact, sitting and warming themselves at a fire. And this fire becomes very important. There's nothing more natural than gathering around a fire on a March evening in Jerusalem. John says the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Peter is simply doing what the others are doing. He is imitating them as they've huddled around this fire, rubbing their hands together. And then as they're there in the courtyard, one of the servant girls comes and says, seeing Peter warming himself, she said, you also were with Jesus, the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out onto the porch. And the servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. We can tell by your accent. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. And immediately a roaster crowed a second time. Now Peter is not simply lying, is he? Let's be a little generous with Peter. He's being asked to admit that he was with Jesus. But what can that mean now? There are no disciples or community to be with. There's no one surrounding Jesus. Neither Peter nor anyone else is truly with Jesus any longer. It's not simply the authorities in the crowd that have shifted allegiance. There is nobody with Jesus. And Jesus' arrest seems to have destroyed any possible future of being with Jesus. And see, Peter, maybe momentarily, he's confused. He's lost his memory. I do not know. I do not understand what you're talking about. He's in a state of confusion. Maybe he doesn't understand. He is no longer with anyone. Then he turns back to the fire. He's with his people now. All Peter wants is a fire to warm himself in this blackest night that has perhaps turned out to be the coldest night of his life. And he reaches out to the fire and to the community that's formed themselves around the fire. Peter's not with Jesus. He's with these folks now. Mark, Luke, and John, they all mention this fire a second time when the servant girl appears again. She saw Peter warming himself there, stared at him and said, You too were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. And Peter, in characteristic fashion, goes too far, too fast. Um, the bystanders then turn on him too. And says, Sure, you're one of them. Peter raises his voice. He begins, and maybe this is dangerous in this situation. But Peter's a bold guy, right? Everything he does is bold. Even when he's denying Jesus, he's not going to whisper it in the night quietly. 
he boldly shouts it in the courtyard of the high priest. You're not one of them, are you? You're clearly a Galilean. And so the accent, Peter's Galilean accent. He's not one of us. He doesn't talk like us. And Peter's trying to integrate himself to become a member of this new group. And his swearing is not, you know, the swearing of Popeye, gosh darn, you know, that kind of swearing. But it's Jewish swearing. It's swearing by the temple. It's swearing by all that's holy. It's religious swearing. And inasmuch as Jesus has described himself as the true temple, Peter is severing ties with Jesus. Peter makes Jesus his victim in order to stop being himself the victim of this tiny group. He would treat Jesus just as they would treat Jesus. And of course we all know the best way to make friends in a hostile world is to espouse the hatred of the group and adopt the enemies that the others have as our groups are defined by whom we would exclude. His desire to be accepted is intensified by the obstacles that are put in his way. He's ready to pay Peter very dearly for admission to this group. It's a small act of cowardice, isn't it? We've all done it. It's so trivial that we may not even remember the little betrayals that we've all committed. And shame is, of course, the controlling emotion in the entire scene. The shame of being excluded from this group. Peter's now ashamed of Jesus, whom all the world despises. So does Peter. He's ashamed of the model, Jesus, that he's chosen. And most of all, he's ashamed of himself. He has truly ceased in this brief moment to be a follower of Jesus. He would now side with those who would kill Jesus so that he might be saved. The logic of Caiaphas has taken hold in Peter himself. The best way not to be crucified is to do as everyone else and join in the crucifixion. This is the democratic principle at work. And then later when the cock crows and Peter remembers Jesus' words, The shame of seeing himself in the eyes of Jesus and of God overwhelms him. But let's not be too quick to condemn poor Peter. It's no surprise he can't be counted on. He's changeable. He's impulsive. He's sort of weak in character. It's not an unusual type. It's like Pilate, who could not resist the crowd. It's like Herod, who succumbs to those who surround him. He's like anyone who stands with the majority against the victim, against the oppressed. The Gospels demonstrate this again and again. Even the most powerful fall into line and imitate those around them. And we recognize this maybe in our own lives, where our tendency might be to give ourselves a pass for the little betrayals and hatreds. Well, the Gospels are not so gentle upon us. Here is our, in our ordinary behavior, the logic that controls us. Let this other die, that I might live. Well, this is like Peter's betrayal. 
It's like the betrayal and logic of the crowd. It is the way of Judas. It is the logic of the Aztec sacrificers, the witch hunters. The logic that has brought Peter to this point is really the triumphant messianism that had never included the cross. You remember after Peter's good confession? And Peter, uh, or Jesus says he must go up to Jerusalem and die. And Peter says, no, Lord, you're mistaken. Let me get you straight on that. And Peter is severely reprimanded. In fact, it's worse than severe. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Here's the devil in confrontation with Jesus. At the second, you know, Jesus talks about the passion again only a few hours before his arrest. And Peter reacts differently this time. He says, Jesus says, you will all lose faith in me this night. Peter said, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said, truly I say to you that this very night before a roaster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples following Peter, their model here, say the same thing. He swears he would rather die than disown Christ. And Jesus understands, of course, you're all going to desert me because you don't know about what you're about to face. And, of course, Peter's attack on the high priest's servants, you know, it's sort of inexplicable, but now we understand it. Jesus is trying to teach the disciples about agape love. He's just washed their feet and saying, if the master so washes your feet and serves you, so you each must become the servant of all. And Jesus teaches a new word here. And that is this agape, this self-sacrificial love. And that's the way that one dies for Jesus. Not in the way that Peter would. He's going to take out his sword and go down a blaze of glory. And so yes, in the end, the logic of Caiaphas, it sweeps them all along. But Caiaphas, let's give him credit. He is the brilliant politician that gets this ball rolling. And they're all caught up in the model he provides. Let this man die that the nation might be saved. Evil is always justified by the greater good that will come. This is the way that I think we typically think about peace. That we will achieve peace through war. It's Aristotle's definition. You know, there's an originary chaos. There's an originary violence. And the meaning of peace in Aristotle's definition is in some way controlling the chaos, killing the evil or sacrificing for the greater good. So peace is pictured as the goal of war, the very reason wars are of fought. To obtain peace is usually thought we have to subdue or kill or oppress. It requires vigilance to maintain peace. And of course, the logic that put Christ on the cross is the way of peace in this understanding. John 15, 25 says, But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in the law. They hated me without a cause. Psalms 35, 19 
is fulfilled in Christ, which says, they hated me for no reason. John tells us that the hostile forces are gathering for the passion. And the works of the law, the meaning of the Old Testament and the prophecies are coming true. Jesus says the words of scripture have to be fulfilled in me. He let himself be taken for a criminal. Talking about that passage in Isaiah where the crowds surround the singular victim. The persecutors cannot see that their hatred is without cause, that the criminal is no criminal at all. This is the story of the Old Testament, the story leading up to the Passion. Think of Lamech, the generation of Noah, of Jonah, of Cain, who cannot understand the words of God, of Joseph and his brothers, of David who is so blind to his sin until Nathan exposes it. The prostitute that would slay the child before Solomon. What's obvious to all of us, she's blind to. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus exposes the history of murder. The blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. And then he says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. And Lord, here's the history of murder and the door, the the mystery hidden since the foundation of the world is being opened to you. These things, uh, the, the, the foundation of murder, the way that it's the beginning of the social order, it all comes out in the passion, in the words of Caiaphas. But now we know, right? Persecutors always believe in the excellence of their cause. This is Peter's announcement on the very first sermon. He says, Through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And of course we learn in the Gospels that Herod and Pilate became fast friends from that day forward. The kings of the earth found common cause. The rulers of the earth gathered together on this point. The absence of cause in the accusation, though, is never seen by the persecutors. Peter says, now I know, brothers, that neither you nor your leaders had any idea what you were really doing. It's an echoing of Jesus' words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But where the gospel is preached, this can never be the case again. We cannot be persecutors of anyone. We must follow Jesus and lay down our life for the other. Now this is not the democratic way. This is not very smart politically. But this is what's required of the followers of Christ. Jesus says... My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends 
For everything that I have learned from you, my Father, I have made known to you. We can never claim we know not what we do, because now we know. And we then too are called to take up the cross of agape love and follow Jesus. Let's sing.